These songs that we have sung today are a message in themselves, and they are intended each Lord's Day to be just that, to be songs that draw our attention to the new life, to praise of the Lord, to encouragement of one another. I hope you've been listening as we've been singing, as well as singing with purpose, as we have lifted our voices to express our oneness in Christ, that we are the people of God marching to Zion, that we are His family, His people, and that our faith holds to Him and Him alone. As we sing these songs, rejoicing in our unique relationship to the Lord as His people, what attitude should permeate our assembly as we express these ideas? I think one possible attitude, very possible in fact, is evidenced in many churches throughout the world. I hope not in ours, but I think one attitude is apathy. Many churches seem to just have a spirit of apathy as they come together for worship. There's cold, ritualistic distance between them and God, and many times I think that is probably because there is a tremendous gap between them and God. Another is a a spirit of fun and entertainment, which is very prevalent in our day. We come to worship God and express these words to gain some emotional high. Uh, It's much better than apathy. I'd much rather be in a place like that. But there's a danger of turning our relationship to Christ into nothing more than a mystical experience where the brain goes into a TV-type stupor and we seek emotional release. There are other assemblies. I've sat in them. You may as well. You may have done so as well. And, And that is a place where it seems that the Spirit is one of pride. There is this idea that we are smarter and better than the world around us, and we're really feeling pretty good about it. Especially those churches that emphasize man's part in salvation. The Spirit seems to be sometimes, hey, didn't we bring ourselves to this point anyway? Aren't we pretty great? And there's a spirit of pride. What should be our goal as we worship and sing these songs of the new life and of our belonging to the Lord I think that our goal should be one, if I could use this phrase and many others could be used, but I think it should be a spirit of humble joy. We have been chosen by God as His people and called out from this fallen world to be His very own. That should humble us to the core of our being. We don't deserve to be here today. He has called us to be His people. He has brought us to this place. That is grace and grace alone. And that should humble us. And it should be a humility, I think, which certainly certainly expresses itself in joy because there are great prospects for us in the promises of God. We've been delivered from this sinful world. We are no longer under its bondage. And there is a future that awaits us in heaven with the saints of old. A day when we will meet Jesus Christ. What joy is ours as we approach that end. And this brings us then, as we consider these thoughts about who we are and the spirit that we should bring to these concepts, that we belong to God and have been delivered from this world, that brings us to our jet tour through the book of Genesis, which I, will, I am forced to admit today is going to slow a bit, and I hope we don't crash the airplane. But uh, I don't know if it's just my experience or if it's DC-9s, but the last few times I've been in them, they seem like those engines have a, have a tendency to just roar, and you really feel good, and then they like turn them off, and it gets silent in midair. I don't know if that's been anyone else's experience. But I've learned to get my heart back down out of my throat and say the thing, it's just slowing down to the speed that it needs to be at. But those engines just purr. And they slow down and you feel like you're crashing. We're going to maybe feel that way a little bit here today for a few moments. Hang on. We really are flying. It is a jet tour. But we do need, I think, to stop at the point where we are at and slow just a little bit. So bear with me with this, but this is such vital information for us. And again, understanding that many were not with us three to four years ago when we went through this section, we'll slow down just a little bit here today. So we're still on a jet tour. We're just cruising uh, a little bit. But let's review where we've been. We are talking here about major themes in Genesis. Now we could develop this a number of different ways, and this is not the way that the book is outlined. 
uh, make that clear. Uh, matter of fact, if I could just jump in here, I, I didn't know if I'd use this, but if I could uh, just remind us of how the book itself is actually outlined, we have this uh, moving back and forth between narrative and genealogy. This is how the book is laid out, and there is this Hebrew word toledoth, or the generations of, or the account of, that continues to show us the transitions uh, uh, between these two columns here on the right, the narrative column and the genealogy column. So there, there's that, this is how the book is laid out from a literary standpoint. Um, but we are not looking at it that way in our jet tour. We're not going down that carefully, but we're looking here rather just at the major themes, themes that will distinguish us from our world. We look first of all at creation. We understand that God created the heavens and the earth, that He is therefore the Lord of all things, and to Him we are responsible. We look secondly at the major theme of fall. Mankind's problem is sin. Our problem is not what has happened to us. Our problem is ultimately our own sin and our own fall. And what is, what is wrong with this world is not a, a lack of development or a lack of education, ultimately. It is sin. We have chosen to violate our Creator's will, and we have fallen in sin in Adam. The third theme, then, is two peoples. We looked at the initial conflict, and remembering here that there are the people of God and that there are the people of the serpent chapter 3 and verse 15. There would be a conflict between God's people and the people of the serpent, epitomized in the conflict of Satan and Christ at the cross. But we have this initial conflict described in chapter 4 between Cain and Abel. Then we move to subsequent development as the line of Cain uh, takes root and a city is developed a culture is developed in opposition from God in chapter 4, epitomized by the poem of Lamech, verses 23 and 24, a self-dependent, self-exalting, I-don't-need-God claim from the people of Cain's city. Then thirdly, point C there under 3, the eventual convergence in chapter 6. We remember the people of God, the sons of God, who I take to be men, people, who were identifying with the Lord, chapter 4 and verse 26. They were worshiping God, gathering together for prayer, apart from the world, but they began to play the world's game. They began to take wives with no concern of their spiritual condition, taking wives simply for the sake of beauty, but far more importantly, playing the world's game of power. They, this, their offspring were not the Nephilim, they were the Nephilim, the Nephilim were there, that is, the powerful people of the earth were there, and they became the powerful people until it was impossible to distinguish between God's people and the people of the world. God judges then at point D in divine judgment and blessing. He judges the world, destroys it with a flood, but saves Noah. We come then, after that whole discussion of Noah's survival in the flood, the very waters that destroy the world save Noah, and Noah is then blessed again as a sort of new Adam, chapter 9 and verse 7. As for you, be fruitful and increase in number, multiply on the earth and increase upon it, recalling the blessing of God in chapter 1 and verse 28. So Noah and his people descend from the ark, and in chapter 10 we have what is referred to as the table of nations, this list of nations that come from the three sons of, of Noah. Shem, Hem, Ham, and Japheth. We noted in chapter 10 the reference to the border of Canaan at verses 18, 19 down there, and also then the uh, reference in verse 25. We'll come to that here in a moment, uh, but we look at Peleg uh, and the sons of Eber, Peleg and Joktan. As we come to chapter 11, we'll come back to that point in a moment, but as we come to chapter 11, let's consider this very context. Following the universal flood, we have these three sons of Noah. People are descending from the mountains of Ararat, where the ark came to rest. We have read of the blessing of Noah and his children, and in chapter 10 of his descendants. But let me go back up into chapter 10, just one more moment here, at verse 8. 
We have there, or verse 9 rather, a mighty warrior named Nimrod. Like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord was the phrase. And the first centers of his kingdom were Babylon and then several other centers. Notice that reference there to Babylon. Then later in verses 19 and verse 19, a reference to Canaan. And then to 10.25, where we have a reference to the sons of Eber, Peleg and Joktan. And you notice that in Peleg's day, the earth was divided. That word divided is probably a division that's reflecting chapter 11 and the confusion of languages. How were people divided? They were divided linguistically. They were separated by different languages, and there is some conjecture that this may have also been a physical issue, that the earth itself, that the plates of the earth uh, floated apart. There's some indication of that. Even evolutionists would uh, agree with that point at various points. It has nothing to do with creation-evolution debate. It's possible there was a physical division, but I think contextually, chapter 11, the division is that they were divided by language and separated into various portions of the world. So chapter 11 does what? Chapter 11 goes back to a time prior to the confusion of tongues. Notice verse 1 of chapter 11. Now the whole world had one language and a common speech. So obviously it's not talking about a time that we have reflected in all of chapter 10, though much of chapter 10 would follow before, would come before chapter 11. The important contrast here is the call to Abram. That is, in chapter 11, we have a time where men rise up in rebellion against God. In chapter 12, we have the call of Abram. As there is, at this point, no language barrier, people are remaining together as they've come down off of the mountains of Ararat and one generation after another has followed. Now we read in verse 2, as men moved eastward, they found a plain in Shinar and settled there. Now Shinar is in the region where Babylon will be founded and where this tower will be built. Verse 3, they said to each other, come, let's make bricks and bake them thoroughly. They used brick instead of stone and tar for mortar. If you remember there, that brick and tar is really almost a joke. It's laughable. They did not use stone and some of the more contemporary building uh, materials that would have been true in Moses' time as he wrote this book, but they just used the simple uh, to, uh, materials of brick and tar, if you can imagine that. It's kind of a mockery. They're building this great tower out of brick and tar. Their fame is their goal. Verse 4, Then they said, Come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens, so that we may make a name for ourselves and not be scattered over the face of the whole earth. The idea there is not to invade heaven itself, to reach the clouds. As I, I think they could take a stone and throw it up there and realize that they weren't getting any closer. I don't think that's the point, that they want to go into heaven. The point is that they want to be, to create their own heaven to create their own place of prominence, to make a name for themselves is the issue. And negatively, what, is, what are they trying to do? To not scatter throughout the world. God had given them that blessing. Chapter 1 and verse 28. To spread throughout all the world, to have offspring and spread throughout the world. They say, no, we want to stay right here. We don't want to enjoy the blessing of God, much as our world does today. Well, their plan hinges upon building a city, and there is their echoes of chapter 4 and verse 17, and the city of Cain's people. The problem is not that they're building a city, the problem is the reason they're building the city. It is to their honor, to their glory. And their boast here in chapter 11 echoes the boast of Lamech. Let us build, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. Lamech had made a name for himself. I don't need God. I'll run my own show. And they're saying something of the same thing here. We don't need the blessing of God. We're not going to spread throughout the world. We are here, and we will build a name for ourselves at this place. Well, we find in verse 5 that God intervenes. The Lord came down to see the city and the tower that the men were building. The Lord said... Let me stop there. You see that the Lord comes down. We hear again the refrain sounded in the Garden of Eden. What did God do when Adam and Eve sinned? He came to them and looked for them. We have here man sinning. What does God do? He comes down and he intervenes once again. 
Notice how Moses describes God's intervention. Where are the builders going? They're they're going up. Let's create our own heaven. Let's go up into the heavens. What's the direction God takes here? He descends. He comes down to them as they are coming up. As Hamilton puts it, God must come down to bring into focus, so to speak, what was supposed to be a building invading celestial heights. Or as another puts it, Yahweh must draw, that is, God must draw near, not because he is nearsighted, but because he dwells at such tremendous height and their work is so tiny. God's movement must therefore be understood as a remarkable satire on man's doing. They build up, God must come down to see what they're doing. It's a narrative dripping with irony and condescension. Well, God deliberates much as he did in the garden. Verse 6 The Lord said, if as one people speaking the same language they have begun to do this, then nothing they plan to do will be impossible for them. God takes them seriously. He doesn't laugh and dismiss them as this is no big deal. He realizes that with undirected depravity, man can do anything that he wants. Obviously that's to be understood as a figure of speech, but it is to say that morality is important, and if that morality slides uncontrolled, there's no telling where it may go. And so we hear again God deliberating as He did in the garden. If He stays in the garden, He'll touch the tree of life. It's not a bad thing to be in the garden, but we've got to remove Him from the garden. And here, if He stays together, There's no telling what may happen. We must remove him from this place. And so God, as he deliberates, comes up with a plan and he confuses their language. He won't destroy them now with a universal flood, but if fallen man continues to move as a global society, he will bring moral destruction on his head and so God intervenes. His plan, verse 7, is to confuse their language. In verse 8, he acts. Verses 8 and 9, he scatters them. And the building stops, and they call the place then Babel. The sons of man wanted to do two things. What was it? Build a city and not spread throughout the world. God comes down to assure that that both of those ideas are frustrated. And as always, God's punishment brims with mercy. Let me quote at some length The words of Delich here, the breaking up of the united human race into peoples with different languages was a divine act for the good of man. For by this means a barrier was made against sin, which without this separating wall of the language would have obtained a terrible intensity. Now, however, the immoral and irreligious products of one nation are not equally destructive to another, and many false religions are better than one since they paralyze one another. Even war, which arises from the selfish character of nationalities, is better than the idle peace of universal estrangement from God. I was talking just yesterday about uh, a project that we're looking at here, Lord willing, and as... uh, we receive your blessing here to travel to Lithuania. We were just talking about that yesterday and the barrier of speech. As we go over there, one of the most frustrating things, and has been in other places, one of the most frustrating things of missions is speech. It causes so much trouble, but we must look on the other side of it and realize that the division of speech is also part of God's plan to manage depravity. That phrase is so well put. An idle peace of universal estrangement from God is the greatest difficulty. And so God brings an end to that. And we have this editorial comment here in verse 9. Because there the Lord confused the language of the whole world, for there the Lord scattered them over the face of the whole earth. In utter disrespect of this glorious city of Babylon, the biblical text uses a less than flattering word. It refers to it as Babel which meant, in their thinking, the gate of God. But the biblical text uses a wordplay to link Babel with Balal, which means confusion. There God confused their tongues. So the rebels viewed Babylon as the crown jewel of human achievement. God viewed it as a symbol of divine judgment. And so from there, from that place where they were going to stay and not move, God scatters them throughout the world. It would be 
very beneficial, I think, to stop and to belabor this point. We must move on. But let me just say one more thing. We are living in, a, in the spirit. We, we live in the midst of a culture where the spirit of Babel is alive. You have to be living under a rock not to realize this one world cooperative spirit of rebellion against God is alive and well in our day. It is an organized system against God and his purposes. To just illustrate it with one illustration among so many, let me read from the Humanist Manifesto 2. Listen to these words. Humanity to survive requires bold and daring measures. Only a shared world and global, only shared world and global measures will suffice. A humanist outlook will tap the creativity of each human being and provide the vision and courage for us to work together. We deplore the division of humankind on nationalistic grounds. We have reached a turning point in human history where the best option is to transcend the limits of national sovereignty and to move toward the building of a world community in which all sectors of the human family can participate. Thus we look to the development of a system of world law and a world order. Human progress can no longer be achieved by focusing on one section of the world. No part of humankind can be isolated from any other. Each person's future is in some way linked to all. We thus reaffirm a commitment to the building of world community. And in that same document there is a clear and precise statement, we don't need God in any of this. Where Babel is alive, the spirit is alive, a one world order to the glory of man apart from God. Well, it's no accident that in the text of Genesis verse 10, we follow with the godly line. In stark contrast to those who rebel against God, Moses skillfully inserts a genealogy again at this point of the chosen people of God, and he factors that in here to the flow of the book, as we reviewed earlier in the, in the makeup of the book. But notice there at verse 10 of Genesis 11, we have the account of Shem. In chapter 10, verse 25, remember we met there Eber and his sons, from which we get the word Hebrew. The Eberites could have been, but the Hebrews, the children of Eber. He had two sons, Peleg and Joktan. Go back to chapter 11, or chapter 10, verse 25. Which of those two sons is considered? In chapter 10, it is Joktan who is considered. Who's considered now as we come to chapter 11, verse 10 and following? As we come there, we're going, as you work your way down through, you will find at verse 18, verse 17, that Eber becomes the father of Peleg, and at verse 18, that Peleg is the one now who is discussed. I think this is intended to gain our attention. We have these two sons of Eber on the front side of the Babel rebellion. We have Joktan. On the other side of the Babel rebellion, we have Peleg. And I think the idea here is that some of the line of Shem go the way of Babylon, the way of Babel, but some of the line of Shem go in a different direction. And that is Peleg and his people. So the journey from Adam to Jesus has taken us through Noah's son Shem, and now we are being guided through Eber to Peleg, and from Peleg in, these, in this genealogy to whom? From Peleg to Terah. Terah, who worshipped the moon god, according to Joshua. He was a pagan, and we would assume that Abram was with him as his son. We, uh, that they worshipped this moon god, though coming, of course, to conversion, to belief in God. Now, please, let me give this point here. God, the godly line does not mean that everybody in the line is godly. Sometimes we take it that way. That's not the point. The point is this is the line through whom Messiah will come. Many of those people were godly. Some representatives were truly godly people. That doesn't mean they all were. But there is a specific line of people through whom Messiah will come and the prophecy of 315 will be realized. So as we work our way there now, through Shem, 
through Eber, through Peleg, we, and now we now come to Terah, chapter 11, verses 27 and following, and here in the division of the book is a major division. We come to the account of Terah and, of course, his son Abram. As we come to chapter 12 and the consideration of Abram, we, uh, this takes us back in time, as you see there in chapter 12, to a time in Mesopotamia where in chapter 11, verses 27 and following, the people of Terah leave Mesopotamia at the call of God. So chapter 12, we'll go back and fill in the details. But at this point, let's call a timeout and let's figure this transition. We have a major divide to go through right here. Once we're here, we're cruising to the end of the book, and you'll understand that in just a moment. But let's compare uh, chapter, the division between ch the first 11 chapters and the remaining 12. I I'm sorry, and the remaining from 12, 12 to 50. You'll notice here some definite distinctions. We have, first of all, the length 11 chapters compared to 38 chapters. 20 generations compared to only 4 generations. And the theme in the first 11 is losing the earth. Adam and Eve lose the Garden of Eden. Where else do we lose the earth? Under Noah, at the time of Noah, the earth is destroyed. The earth seems to keep being taken away from mankind. But as we come to chapter 12, what is the theme? The theme is consistently, it's driven home time after time after time. The theme is gaining the earth, receiving the land in particular of Canaan. The focus in the first 11 is on all nations that stem from Noah, through, from Adam through then to Noah. The focus in the second segment is the family of Abraham. So we see that the first 11 chapters paint in broad strokes, cover much time, many people, and catastrophic events. The second section of the book slows way down, covering only four generations of one family, often going into considerable detail. Now, accepting Joseph, this family does not factor large on the landscape of human history from man's standpoint. But from God's standpoint, he screeches on the brakes and says, look at this family. I want you to consider them very carefully, and I have much to teach you, Gentiles, centuries removed, about faith in me. And so we enter the account of Abram. And as we do, we come to the fourth and final major theme that I'd like to emphasize in our overview. And that is what I'm referring to as elective redemption. If we could go back to the outline there, notice this fourth and final theme of elective redemption. I mean by that simply that God chooses to save specific persons. Here is the big picture. Again, the messianic trail goes from 315 to Seth to Noah to Shem to Eber to Peleg to Terah to Abram. And along that path, faith has been demonstrated. Eve is referred to as the mother of all living in, I think, reflection of the promise of 315. We go to chapter 4 and verse 26. What do we see there? The people of God gathering for worship and for prayer. We go to Noah's father Lamech who expresses the hope in chapter 5 and 29 that through Noah there will be some reversal of God's curse of the earth, that there will be grace in his life. And we also see various places where there are altars. Now God's redemptive plan narrows at this point to one man. It comes down on one individual's head. And we read of this Abram of Ur in Mesopotamia. Who is Abram? Who is this man? Where does he come from? We really hardly know, but God chooses to work with him. As God focuses his redemptive work on this one family, we learn, first of all, of God's elective redemption. That is, he chooses specific people for salvation apart from human merit. You've got to follow me here, because I think it's very important that we realize how God introduces Abram. That's that speaks volumes to us as to how we understand the salvation of God. We do not have an account in chapter 12 of all the good things that Abram did, and God looks down and says, you know what? This guy really stands out, and I think I'm going to work with him. We don't have an account like that. And God is saying something to us along these lines. We do not have an account of Abram going through all of these rational thoughts and finally coming to a place where he commits himself to God and searches for God. Rather, we have God choosing a man, speaking to him. And I'm not saying that Abram had no relationship with God before chapter 12. We don't know. 
But that's my whole point. We don't know, and God does not seem concerned to make that clear to us. What he makes clear to us is he chose Abram. He chose him. He called him out of Ur of Mesopotamia in his grace and mercy alone. Now we notice here, and we will dive in here a little bit, but in the life of Abraham we see this redemptive theme. We will trace that now to the end of the book. There's Abraham, there is Isaac, there is Jacob, and even Joseph and Judah, if we'd combine them under Jacob, that takes us to the end. But it's these themes into which we need to ground our faith, our understanding of life. Creation, fall, two peoples leading into elective redemption of God. Let's look at that. Do you buy that? A call of Abram in Palestine, to Palestine, chapter 12, verse 1. The Lord had said to Abram, leave your country, your people, and your father's household. Now we read here in this text, it says he had said to Abram. Why is that? Because in chapter 11, we have Abram in Haran. Well, it, after the call. So it goes back in time. And he said to Abram, sometime past, leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land I will show you. That's the call to obey God in faith. Very simple, isn't it? What is God up to? We know. I mean, we can jump up and down and go, go, Abram, go. This is great. God's redemptive plan is starting. He's taking you to the land of Canaan, and through you and your great-great-great-grandson, Judah, will come this one, this Messiah. Go, Abram. God's up to something. He's moving. He's working in his redemptive plan. How does Abram take this? This is excruciating. He's being asked to leave his gods, his homeland, his security. There's no insurance companies that follow you all over the world electronically at this time. You leave everything you know and you become a stranger and an alien. You have no security. You have no support. You're leaving everything you know, even his extended family that will not go with him. But there's a promise in it. God says, go. And here's my promise. Verse 2, I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and I will make your name great, and, I, and you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and whoever curses you I will curse, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. Incredible. That is, in the right sense of the word, almost incapable of belief. Offspring? Abram is how old? He's 75, and his wife, Sarai, is barren, according to 1130. Anyone planning to become a nation also needs land, and Abram's land is in his rearview mirror. I mean, nothing is making sense here. I'll make you a great people, and you will be a nation in a land, and I promise you that you will have this land. Abram is going to have to trust God in this. People of faith, this is the way it is, isn't it? God speaks. He makes promises. He doesn't just speak and say, do this. He makes promises that go along with his command that are reasonable, but we cannot figure them out. And he says, trust me. And that is the response now of faith on Abram's part. Verse 4, so Abram left as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. And Abram was 75 years old and went out of Haran. He took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram does not rent a storage locker back in Mesopotamia. He leaves everything that he's not going to bring, and he brings everything that he wants with him. This is a permanent move. He brings his father Terah, his nephew Lot, his wife Sarai, their servants and children. After a period of time in Haran, as they're making their way to Canaan, Terah dies, and Abram now is stripped of absolutely everything, all of his connections to Mesopotamia, other than those who came with him, and he goes into the land of Canaan. Where does he go in Canaan? Oh, just pick a city anywhere? Not at all. Moses very carefully expresses where Abram goes, verses 6 through 9. He travels to Shechem, verse 6. And he's going to end up at a place near Bethel, verse 8. Amazing word and phrase there in just a moment. Let's get to that. But as we come to verse 6, it recalls chapter 10 in the borders of Canaan. This is that promised land. After this long, arduous journey, God finally explains to Abram why he sent him here. Verse 7, the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. 
is that, again, it's not a throwaway phrase. He built an altar. It goes back to, to those who have been worshiping God from the beginning. Abram is identifying with a God who has promised him this land. He's promising him here now an offspring and a land, just as he did earlier in verses 2 and 3. The godless builders of Babel and Abram's home region constructed a magnificent tower to magnify their own name. Abram leaves Mesopotamia in Canaan and, and in Canaan builds a humble altar to the Lord, to His glory and honor. We connect it back to chapter 4 and verse 26. The people of the serpent building a city for themselves, chapter 4, the people of God gathering for prayer and calling on His name. Now let's stop for a moment and think of how this applies to our understanding of salvation. We have here a call to obey God in faith. We have here a promise of divine blessing and a response of trusting obedience. You have it all right there. You have the rest of the Bible right there in many respects. We must recognize, and follow me here carefully, this is important and why I belabor this section. We need to recognize in this passage an organic connection to the doctrine of salvation as it's developed in the rest of the Bible. I think many of us tend to read our Bibles and see these Old Testament people and really, honestly, if we were forced to admit it, we'd come down and say, you know, the people of the Old Testament were saved because they were good people. They offered sacrifices. They did the things God told them to do and therefore they were saved. We have to be very careful of that thinking, as if then when we come to the New Testament in Jesus Christ, salvation now becomes something completely different. Salvation in Jesus is no different than salvation here. It's just much, much, much more precise. It narrows in and is very clear in Jesus. It's somewhat muddied here at this place, but we have the seed. When you plant a tree with a seed, the tree that comes out of that seed came out of that seed, and it didn't come out of anywhere else. And when we talk about salvation in the New Testament, we must remember that salvation comes out of this seed here in chapter 12. We do not have a seed of human works. We do not have a seed of a man who is smart enough to figure out to choose God. We have the calling of God a promise of divine blessing, and a response of trusting obedience. So much hangs on that understanding. Let me press on. We must recognize then in this passage an organic connection between the doctrine of salvation here and the doctrine of salvation in the rest of the Bible. In fact, this account forms a lens which is clarified in the coming of Christ but it's a necessary lens. Genesis 12 is a paradigm for salvation, consistent with everything else that we find on salvation in the Bible. The path of God's saving grace becomes more precise as the Bible unfolds, but it doesn't change. Do you buy that? Let me just show you one simple place, all right? Keep our finger here in Genesis 12 and go to Galatians 3. Galatians 3. I think we see signs of this throughout the New Testament that the New Testament writers always see all of the Bible as developing together. The New Testament is not a new, brand new book that has nothing to do with the Old Testament. It, it comes out of the Old Testament and we see this so clearly. What do we have in Genesis 12.3? We have all peoples of the earth will be blessed through you. What does that mean to Abram? You know, honestly, I don't think Abram really knows what that means. Just in some way, all peoples of the earth are going to be blessed through you, Abram. What does that mean to the New Testament writers under inspiration? Galatians chapter 3 and verse 8. Galatians 3 and verse 8. Well, let me go up to verse 6 just to get the context there. But consider Abraham, says Paul. He believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. More on that in a moment. But understand then that those who believe are children of Abraham. That doesn't mean they're Jews, but it means through faith they've come to place their confidence in God for salvation. Notice the next word. The Scripture foresaw that God would justify the Gentiles by faith and announce the gospel in advance to Abram, all nations will be blessed through you. 
Paul says Genesis 12.3 is the gospel presented to Abraham. Now, that gospel develops. It becomes much more precise. And we must obey and honor what God says in the development of that message. But Paul realizes that Genesis 12.3 is the gospel. Through you, all nations will be blessed. That means Jesus. Through Christ, all nations will be blessed. We could go to many other passages, but I think of Ephesians since we're there. Ephesians chapter 4 and verse 11. I don't believe that Ephesians... I'm sorry. I said that uh, I've got fours and ones in my head, and I'm uh, 1.11. 1.11. Ephesians 1.11, and we could look at verse 4 as well. Uh, Let's do that. Ephesians 1, verses 4 and 11. But He chose us in Him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in His sight. Verse 11, in Him we are also chosen, having been predestined according to the plan of Him who works out everything in conformity to the purpose of His will. There's no conflict with those concepts and what God's doing with Abram. He is choosing him in His own initiative and His own grace to come to saving faith. That faith will come, though, secondly, as Abram obeys and believes. It's not separated from human faith. And there's a popular book that's been put out causing a lot of trouble with a lot of people, and it's a common phrase. You take away the human will of God, you make people robots. It's it's bad logic to begin with, but it's very unbiblical. There's no robot thing going on here at all with Abram. Abram had to pack up all of his goods, and he had to obey God, and he had to leave for any of his salvation to be affected. Does that mean that he, through his works, gained righteousness? What did Galatians 3 say? His faith was credited to him as righteousness. It's not about works to save, but saving faith works. You hear that phrase in the New Testament? That is not something that's brand new. Go to James chapter 2 and verse 20. James chapter 2 and verse 20 realizes that this is how faith works. It obeys. Hebrews 2, or James 2 and verse 20. You foolish man, do you want evidence that faith without deeds is useless? James 2.21 Was not our ancestor Abraham considered righteous for what he did when he offered his son Isaac on the altar? You see that his faith and his actions were working together and his faith was made complete by what he did. And the scripture was fulfilled that says Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness and he was called God's friend. You see that a person is justified by what he does and not by faith alone. It would be tearing James to shreds, I think, to say that that means we are saved by works. What he is saying is that the kind of faith that saves obeys. It's an obedient faith. That doesn't mean perfectly every time we will never sin or anything like that, but it does mean that true, genuine faith believes. Well, okay, we are close to an airplane crash here. We've got to pick up the engines. We're going to pick them up and we're going to rev them and here we move, all right? Um, a lot in that, and I know that it's maybe a little tough to chew on for some, but please just see one thing here. Can I summarize it? This is a seed. From this seed, the doctrine of salvation grows up into a great tree. And you could take an acorn in your finger and put it next to that oak tree and say, no way did this come from this. But it did. And salvation in the New Testament comes from this seed. Abraham receives the call of God. There's a promise connected, and he obeys in saving faith. But, as we know, faith does not perfect us in this life. And Abraham's lapse of faith is seen first in Egypt, chapter 12, verse 10 and following. You remember there's a famine here. Abram goes down to Canaan. And Christ, or away from Canaan, and Christus meets him in Egypt, fearing that he will be killed for his unusually beautiful wife, Sarai. Abram suffers this lapse of faith. He despairs of life, verse 13. He loses sight of God. He lies about his relationship to his wife. Pharaoh takes Sarai, but God 
punishes the unsuspecting king with disease and perhaps in part because Pharaoh runs a regime in which an innocent man feels he's either got to lie or die. But in the end, Pharaoh proves more honorable than Abram in this text. He returns Sarai, loads Abram with riches, sends him packing to Canaan. God deals graciously with his man in this lapse of faith. Oh, how I thank God for this section of Scripture. He doesn't say, well, Abram, you blew it now. Deal's off. I'll find somebody else. God works with Abram, and Abram learns something in Egypt, which is so clear as we come to chapter 13. And there, in that separation from Lot, they have great riches, verses 1 and 2. Riches that remind Abram of his being enriched in Egypt because of his disobedience. There's worship here, verses 3 and 4. From the Negev, he went from place to place until he came to Bethel, to the place between Bethel and Ai where his tent had been earlier and where he had first built an altar. There Abram called on the name of the Lord. Those indicators are saying, go back in your reading to verse 7 of chapter 12. You go back there and realize that's where he built an altar. And the text is saying, us, saying to us, and he went back to that same place. And remember, this, this is just the amazing thing about Genesis. Was this called Bethel at this time? It isn't called Bethel until chapter 28, remember? Lot, uh, uh, Lot um, Jacob renames it from Luz to Bethel many years later. The point is, at Bethel is a place where God meets with His people and where His people meet with God. And Abraham comes out of Egypt in that debacle of faith and he says, I'm here. I'm back. I'm with you. In repentance and worship, he falls before the Lord and he's about to be tested. There's a great crisis beginning at verse 5 and that's that the land, of course, including the Canaanites and Perizzites which surround them, the land does not hold lots. Um, herds and flocks, nor and Abram's together. And so Abram says to him, have a choice. You go where you want to go, verses 10 and following. Lot looked up and saw the whole plain of Jordan. Verse 11, he chose for himself the whole plain of Jordan because it was well watered and fertile. And Abram lived in the land of Canaan, verse 12. Lot lived among the cities of the plain and pitched his tents near Sodom. Everything looked like Lot had the good deal here. But in his in faith, Abram realizes God's promise. It's no accident that then at verse 14, the Lord says to Abram after Lot parted, lift up your eyes, look to the east, to the west, to the north, to the south. Verse 15, all the land that you see I will give to you and your offspring forever. God already told Abram that. Why is He telling him again? He just keeps repeating the promise. Trust me, Abram. Trust me. Trust me. This land will be yours. Trust me. I will make, verse 16, the second part of the promise, your offspring like the dust of the earth. Go walk through it, Abram, verse 17. This is your land. Now it's not going to be your land in your lifetime. Outside of that one cave of Machpelah, he will not own anything here, just that field and cave, but it's his land. God reiterates his promise. Abram has to continue to trust God, and he does so in one of the most dramatic accounts of Scripture in chapter 14. We have here uh, a list of these two alliances which were fighting against each other. Just remember them as we run through chapter 14. We have this eastern alliance that had subjected these city-states around the Dead Sea Valley. The Dead Sea Alliance uh, rebels against the eastern kings. They come down the king's highway. They cross over the Jordan. They defeat these, these city-states. And who's there? Lot is there at Sodom. He's captured. His possessions are taken. He's heading northward. Now looking back on the fertile plain and realizing it had done him nothing, he is leaving Canaan. He's, he's a prisoner of war who knows what awaits him. Abram, as I said, is sipping lemonade under a tree at Mamre. He knows nothing about this. There's no evening news or newspaper, but somebody comes running in showing the signs of fear and of war and of struggle and says, tells him what has happened a lot. What does Abram do? He goes after his nephew. He recovers his nephew, recovers his wealth. And we come then to verse 18, where he meets Melchizedek, the king of Salem, brought, who brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of 
God Most High. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God Most High, Creator of heaven and earth. And blessed be the God Most High who, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. And obviously the New Testament makes much of this interchange between the two. We bring our, our gifts now, in a sense, to the priest after the order of Melchizedek, Jesus Christ. But Abram lays that out for us here as he gives 10% of the spoil. His response to the king of Sodom, I'll not be enriched by any more pagans. He learned his lesson in Egypt. He will trust God from here. And how God responds with joy in his servant Abram. In chapter 15, he reiterates his covenant with Abram. As we enter this great chapter, Abram's faith is apparently again under pressure. His confidence in the promises of God is flagging. God confirms his promise of an offspring to Abram in verses 1 through 5. You will have children. Verse 4, the word of the Lord came to him. This man will not be your heir, he says, of Damascus, of Eliezer of Damascus, his servant, but a son coming from your own body will be your heir. God gets more and more specific with His promises as He does with us, right? He gets more and more specific as we come to understand the face of Jesus Christ in the pages of Scripture. And someday when we meet Him, how all will make so much more sense. But He's making sense of it to Abram. He says, Abram, it's your body through whom this child will be born. God confirms His promise of a land to Abram. In, in verses 7 through 21 of chapter 15. It's this land, this land you will take. You remember that vision of the night. Verse 16a, in the fourth generation your descendants will come back. Here. I'm sorry, I need to read up ahead there. Verse 13 is what I meant to say. Verse 13, then the Lord said to him, know for certain that your descendants will be strangers in a country not their own. They will be enslaved and mistreated 400 years. A prophecy of the Exodus, a very key passage in Genesis. But I will punish the nation. They will serve as slaves, and afterward they will come out with great possessions. You, however, will go to your fathers in peace and be buried good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here. Again, we say God's got the daytimer in heaven. I mean, he knows when it's all happening, and he tells them. For the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. Very important phrase. It would take 400 years before the sin of the Canaanites became so vile as to render God unimpeachably just in exterminating these people. When God sent Israel into Canaan, it's important to remember, He did so that they would be conquered, but for four centuries He waited. This is not simply aggression. This is justice, as God calls them to this. And then what happens, that strange scene where that fire pot, like this clay pot with glowing flame and a torch, passed through the split animals, as a means of establishing this covenant. And where's Abram? He's laying over there asleep. This is, a, this is something that God has done, as he makes so very clear. First of all, it's a unilateral covenant. That is, it's a, it is grace alone. God says, I'll give you this land, I'll give you these people. Secondly, the covenant applies to Abram's physical descendants. The covenant will include specific borders in Canaan, and this covenant, I think we could say, has not been realized fully to this day. Now, what does all of that say to us? Hang with me a little longer. Verse, uh, chapter 15 and verse 6. We have here what is really the hinge to this great covenant. What's in the first half of the covenant is the promise of an offspring. The second half of the covenant is the promise of a land. It all hinges at 15.6. 15.6 says this, Abraham, Abram believed the Lord, and he credited it to him as righteousness. He believed, and God said, I count that as righteousness. Does the New Testament come up with a different plan? Does it move away from this idea Obviously not. Let's go to Romans chapter 4. Romans chapter 4, verse 1. Where does Paul's theology come from? Obviously from direct revelation, but as he's depending on the Old Testament and all of the Old Testament, he gains his ideas about salvation here from the Genesis account. Romans 4 and verse 1. 
What then shall we say that Abraham, our forefather, discovered in this matter? If, in fact, Abraham was justified by works, he had something to boast about, but not before God. What does the Scripture say? Abraham believed God, and it was credited to him as righteousness. Now, when a man works, his wages are not credited to him as a gift, but as an obligation. However, to the man who does not work but trusts God who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited as righteousness. Abraham was one of those wicked people. But God credited trusting God as righteousness to Abram's account. It's no different for us. Verse 16 of the same chapter of Romans. Therefore, now notice this carefully, Romans 4.16. Therefore, the promise comes by faith so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only of those who are of the law, but also to those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all. As it is written, I have made you a father of many nations. He is our father in the sight of God in whom he believed, the God who gives life to the dead and calls things that are not as though they were. Against all hope, Abraham in hope, believed. That is the key. He did not waver, verse 20, regarding the promise of God, but was strengthened in his faith and gave glory to God. So, verse 23, the words it was credited to him were written. Notice this. They were written not for him alone, but also for us, to whom God will credit righteousness, for us who believe in him who raised Jesus our Lord from the dead. It's not go out of Ur, now it's believe in Jesus who died and rose from the dead. He was delivered over, for, to our, over to death for our sins and was raised to life for our justification. You see the connection. Jacob and Esau with Romans 9, 6 through 15. Elective redemption drawn directly out of the Genesis account. Another lapse of faith comes to Abraham at Abram here in chapter 16 as he sleeps with Hagar, Sarai's maidservant, in order to raise up offspring for his wife. That was commonly practiced in that day, but it was a lack of faith. Sarai rejects Hagar. She's driven away. God promises that he will make a great nation of Ishmael. Hagar bears Ishmael to Abraham eventually, but God again ministers then to Abram at chapter 17 where we have a repetition of the covenant. Verses 1 through 8. When Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to him and said, I am God Almighty. Walk before me and be blameless. I will confirm my covenant before me and you will greatly increase your numbers. Abram fell face down and said to God, what did he say? As for me, this is my covenant with you. You will be the father of many nations. No longer will you be called Abram. Your name will be Abraham, for I have made you a father of many nations. I will make you very fruitful. I will make nations of you. And kings will come from you. I will establish my covenant as everlasting covenant between me and your descendants after you and for the generation to come to be your God and the God of your descendants after you, the whole land of Canaan, where you are now alien, I will give as an everlasting possession to you and your descendants after you, and I will be their God. More specific, your body will be from you. There will be kings that come. He just repeats the same promise of a people and a land. At verse 15, God also said to Abraham, As for Sarai, your wife, you are no longer to call her Sarai. Your, her name will be Sarah. I will bless her and will surely give you a son by her. Now it really gets weird. She has been barren and is 90. You don't count on her having a baby anytime soon or ever. But God says, not only is it your body, Abram, now I'm telling you, it's her body. Abram is going to have to trust God's promise. It doesn't make sense. He can't figure it out on his own, but he's going to put his confidence there in faith. Do what God told him to do. Abram then, as the sign was given here earlier in the chapter, is circumcised as a sign of this promise. And I think very specifically circumcision is a symbol which is intended to draw attention to this offspring. 
you will have many people, and through this offspring will come the ultimate seed, Jesus Christ, who will save his people from their sin. All that Abram does here is believe. He trusts and he obeys. The initiative is with God. The elective love is with God. With Abraham is belief. Now these four themes, we'll invest a little bit further time, Lord willing, in the weeks to come on this last one as it plays out in the lives of the other patriarchs. But we have here in these first 12 chapters, really, these four major themes. These are themes that must mark our understanding of life itself. Creation, fall, two peoples, and the one leading to elective redemption. All the glory belonging to the Lord and our task being to listen to what God says and to do what He says. As we read earlier today, it is impossible to please God apart from faith. Here, chapter 15, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him as righteousness. That's what our life is about. It's a walk of faith in which we trust God at His word. And that is the greatest life to live on this earth. There is no greater life. We can build Babel, create our towers, draw attention to ourselves, seek our own way in rebellion against God, or we can